Welcome to the Thy Neighbor Podcast, conversations with everyday people who are crushing it and making the world a more lovely place to inhabit. I am your host and occasional solo caster, Tracy Robbins King. If you are inspired by this episode and someone comes to mind as you listen, share this with that person. If you have benefited from the podcast, please like, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Podbean. Your ratings, reviews, and shares make a difference and allow this podcast to reach more remarkable people like you. Do we realize that experiencing failure is actually a gift? Carolyn knows this on a personal level and can teach this to adults and youth alike. Carolyn Morris grew up along the beautiful Wasatch Front in Salt Lake City, where the mountains were her playground, refuge, and dearest friend. Anytime she can go explore in the mountains, she is a happy soul. She received a bachelor's in communication studies at USU and furthered her education at Westminster and received a master's of strategic communication. People are Carolyn's passion. Geeks, freaks, goths, jocks, gays, doesn't matter to her. After working in the financial, legal, and human capital industries, she has jumped into investing in the youth. Now, more than ever, the youth need advocates to teach them how to create intrinsic confidence, resiliency, and becoming better communicators. So we're going to jump right in. Carolyn, since I booked this interview got engaged first off. And so there's huge news for her. And as we started this before we pressed record, Carolyn jumped in to tell me about all the other changes she's also made. So we're going to just give her the floor and tell us what's happening, Carolyn. Oh my, so I quit my corporate job, which was wild because I'm sitting here thinking, I, I, A, I needed to shake up because getting engaged isn't enough. So we're going to go with like a career change. I'm going to move, going to start this whole new chapter. But the reason why I quit my corporate job was because I noticed that there was a pattern in these younger professionals that they had a horrendous time being able to articulate themselves, to share their experience, to share their skill set, to be able to have a conversation. And so there was this one interview that I had actually, that this poor person literally threw up on the interview because they were so nervous. They were so nervous that they literally threw up. And I said, okay, listen, I appreciate that you were really nervous for this. And I, we're going to do a few deep breaths. We're going to like so I literally went through like this mindfulness exercise with this individual. And I said, I'm going to call you back in two minutes so that you can take some deep breaths. And we're just going to have a fresh slate. We're going to start over. And I called them back and they absolutely slayed their interview. I was like, that's what I'm talking about. You just needed someone to believe in you. You needed some, someone to talk you off the ledge of like, you can do this. And so I quit my corporate job to figure out what in the world is going on in these high schools. What is going on that these young kids can't connect with another person? They can't communicate. They can't, they just flop over and they're literally throwing up over a screen interview. This is literally a first round interview. And so there's not a lot on the line. I just want to have a conversation with you. And it has been fascinating. I am three days into this research project. And my mind has been nothing short of blown about the disconnect, the trends, the patterns, the behaviors that I've seen. And I like Tracy, it is wild out there. 
it is a totally different world than what we have experienced. And so being in their world, in their environment and understanding where the disconnects are coming from a different lens and a different perspective, because listen, I'm not a teacher. I'm not going to sit here and be like, you have to do your work. You have to do this. You have to do that because it's, there's 10 days left in the school year for them. They literally are so checked out because this is a COVID generation. I've never lived through a global pandemic and had to do school virtually and do that all online. So talking to some of these students, they're like, my social skills are total garbage. And I was like, you're right. They are. (laughs) You're not wrong there. I appreciate the self-awareness. They won't even like reach out to the student next to them. Every single person had a cell phone in their hand. Why is everybody having their cell phones out? Like you would rather have this synthetic relationship with people on social media than the person sitting literally right next to you. And so I called them out on it. I'm like, help me understand that. And so learning what they're going through, learning like the mental acrobatics that they're putting themselves through, it's, it's unprecedented. Okay. There's so many different ways I could take this right now, just because of what you stated, but did you just, so you just barely quit your job and you have just been, you've been substitute teaching for three days. Is this true? Three days. That is a fact on this very day as of three days. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. So can you share some of the observations that you've already made about these, the youth? And I'm sure you've already made observations before you ever got into this position, but what specifically have you observed in this setting that maybe you previously weren't seeing? The amount of people who are on their cell phones was just, it was so disheartening. Every I counted all but one person was on their cell phone because they were reading a hardcovered book. I was like, what are you doing on your cell phones? That is like so engaging that you would rather not talk to the person next to you. Uh, so cell phones is a huge one on average, three to four people in a classroom had their heads down. And I was like, why? Like what's happening? So you would rather be totally engrossed in your phone shut everybody out and not even engage with anybody. And I'm trying to remove my own biases because I am such a social person that I'm, I don't want to project like, Oh, you have to be social. You have to be outgoing. You have to do this. You have to do that. Like at the end of the day, that's not everybody's flavor. And that's a hundred percent fine. But when I was talking with some of these youth, this was the most disheartening phrase I heard in my entire life. She said, if I'm not on Instagram, I don't exist. This is a senior in high school. If I'm not on Instagram, I don't exist. Where did she learn that? Why is that even a thing? I mean, these are things that teachers aren't aware of because they have their curriculum. They have their framework. They have like, they have their agenda and I'm going in there and I'm asking them like, what does social media provide you? And I, And some people think it's inclusivity and other people think it's exclusion. And so it's kind of a mixed bag and the social cues, the social etiquette, um, people are more and more comfortable being a hundred percent disrespectful. And it's, it's not just a, an epidemic in, um, like the social media and technology realm. There is an epidemic in parenting. Because these kids are mirroring behaviors. It's not like they just, oh, well, everybody is super disrespectful. They're learning that. 
Where are they learning that? Where are they getting course corrected? Where are the boundaries? Where's the communication? There's this one gal who said, I wish that I could talk to my parents, but they're always on their phone. What is going on? Like, what is happening? You mean to tell me that you are craving a connection with your parents, but they're so engrossed in their phones that they are personally robbing themselves of the most sacred connection of a parent-child relationship. That is, that is self-inflicted. That is, a, that is horrendous at best. So those are some of the trends, some of the things that I've seen. There's obviously a lot more to digest. I have pages of notes. And I mean, there's some trends that are like the same from when I was in high school, you know, like you have some of the alphas of like, oh, I got to puff my chest a little bit. And there are these two young guys and they were kind of like, they started to escalate a little bit. And I grew up in a home that's uh, I, I grew up with all brothers, sports oriented family. So I'm used to being loud. And those two kids, they stood up like they were going to go have a tussle. And immediately I was like, Hey, you guys need to cool the jets. And they immediately stopped. And I was like, and I called the student's name and I said, you need to move up front. And they were totally fine. Like they knew the boundary, they knew the expectation. And from then on, they were totally fine because they knew where my boundary was as the adult these are my expectations. If you're disrespectful, you're gone. Period. I don't, I don't put up with that. I don't know what your other expectations are, but in this class, in this substitute teaching experience, if you were disrespectful, that is my only rule that you have to be respectful. And if you bend that, you're gone. I don't believe in that. That is absolutely inappropriate on so many levels. So Tracy, it's just wild that these young people just want to feel seen, valued, and appreciated. And I was talking to another student and I said, okay, I got to tell you something. I'm actually um, an undercover substitute teacher. And they're like, what? And I was like, so riddle me this. Like my understanding is that high schools, they really just want to be loved and they want to mentor. And this young guy said, I wish that more people understood that. That's all they want is to feel seen, heard, and validated. That's what love is. But like, we have to show up for that. It can't be this synthetic experience. It can't be via technology. Like show up and show up for them. It's not always about us as adults. Like it is about them. It's about the future. It's about investing in the entire generation that's coming up into the workplace and more. Like they are literally going to be the leaders of our nation. And if we don't invest in them, who will? Who will? Okay, so there are a few thoughts and a lot of things that I'm I'm thinking about because I have I was a teacher for many years, right? And I left teaching last year, but it was more over some of the issues that I kept on having to confront as a teacher that I felt like there was no training for. They weren't making a stand, they weren't setting any kind of boundaries for the teachers, and the de- the teachers were finding themselves in some really tough situations, including myself. And so I, I think that in those things, the clarity is coming from the top down, like the leadership has to step up in addressing a lot of the social issues that are trickling into the classroom. And of course, amongst their peer groups and things like that. But I do feel like you're right about who else is going to invest in these kids if we don't, who else is going to invest in them? Because they're, they're peers, 
their peers are going to. And do we want those kind of investments? Because that's that's my question. Do we want their peer group to be the ones who tell them <laughs> things? That's a great question to ask ourselves, right? As the older generation, whatever that may mean, but like the generation above them, right? So that is really insightful because I think even from my perspective as a teacher, it was like I needed the people above me to also make a stand about things for me to have the authority also at some moments in my classroom as well. And that's, that's something that I've noticed as well is that there are a lack of policies that if they had that framework, everybody could be held accountable to that. This is the rule. This is the expectation. This is the framework. If you don't meet this, you're outside, you're out of alignment and we need to get you recalibrated. And we're going to show you how that works because that's what it is in corporate. That's what it is. When you start your own business, you have to have these fundamentals. And if we don't learn that in our schools and in our homes, what, what are we doing? What are we doing? Okay. And when you, I'm curious about this, cause I know that high schoolers are not stupid. I know that. And I think that in the regards to respect when you're like my one rule is like be respectful do you ever go into details about what respect looks like yes I ask them who when I say be respectful how many of you understand what I'm saying and some of them are like well I don't know I'm like you know what respect means so I go into a little bit more detail of like being respectful means that if you don't have anything nice to say zip it I don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. If you are going to be intentionally belligerent or belittling, zip it. I don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. You don't need to say it. Also, if someone is talking, your phones, your eyeballs, they're with me, not at your screens. Eyeballs up here. You show me you're listening through your eyeballs. So laying out a few ground rules of what that looks like and feels like for me, this is what respect is. So we will be kind, we will be respectful, and you will give me your eyeballs when I ask for them. I'm like, okay, cool. And it works out. It all works out because they're like, this is what she expects. And so people tend to raise to the, the opinion that they that they need. And they're like, oh, you know what? I need this person to like me. I need this person to validate me. So they will raise to that opinion. So if I have a higher expectation and they're seeking that validation, look, humans are like bottomless pits of validation connoisseurs. Like we all need validation in some capacity. So I know that like as an as an adult, they're looking for that validation. And this is how you're going to get it. This is how it's going to be given is by respect, kindness, and you're giving me your eyeballs. Like, like, thank you, Connor, for looking over here. Or thank you, Elijah, for being respectful. Thank you, Sally, for being on time. Thank you. Like, thanking them and showing them what manners are, it's a big deal. Like, manners have become like this lost art when this needs to be a standard. This is not, this is not rocket science, but we're making it rocket science and we're making it harder than it needs to be. Yeah, that was so well done. Cause I think even students, like they hear the word respect, but they all have different interpretations. So you have to set the standard of what respect looks like, or they will, they'll, there'll be different interpretations of what respect looks like <laughs> in the classroom or to a person. And then how does one adopt failure as an identity? It's a huge cultural thing. I mean, if anybody experiences any type of resistance or they didn't achieve something immediately, 
I am a failure. I am stupid. I am not worthy. I am not enough. I am not, I am, I am. Instead of saying I am, if we rephrase that to like, I experienced failure. I didn't achieve the metrics. I didn't achieve the goals yet. The power of yet is so strong and so powerful that it's okay to say I experienced failure. Everybody experiences failure. You as a human being, on average, toddlers, those those young little love muffins who are learning to walk, the average of falling down is 17 times an hour. So from the get-go, we are training ourselves to get back up. And it's this cultural coddling that's going on. It's like, oh, it's okay. Like, you're enough. You're this, you're that. Well, you know what? Maybe we need to level up. Maybe we've outgrown our environment. Maybe we've outgrown our skills and we need to get new ones to become different and to level up what we really want to become. It's okay to experience failure, but pigeonholing yourself as I am stupid. I am a failure. I am not enough. That's, those are like absolutes. And it's like, you know what? Maybe you experienced failure, but you are not a failure. Like, what are you putting on on yourself as labels? Because everybody's going to put labels on you left, right, and center. Like that happens everywhere we go, everywhere we go. (laughs) So it's like, do those labels resonate with you? And if they do, why? For good or for bad? Why do those labels resonate with you? Why are they important to you? Why do you allow them to stay? And if they're not serving you, get them out. Get them out. If those labels aren't serving you, hit the road, Jack. No chance. What have you done to reprogram? I have been very intentional with who I surround myself with. So I have what are called my A players, my A team. Those people have shown me a lot of compassion, a lot of grace. They've been in the trenches with me. They've helped me get through some really uh, sticky situations or life experiences, and they have loved me through the process of that evolution. And so those people, I tend to only have like five or so of those people who are my A players. And then I have my, you know, it's like the varsity players, the JV, and then you have like the leftovers. (laughs) So it's like, I make sure that like my varsity players are taken care of and they take care of me. And it's like, I need someone who will, who will have radical candor with me of like, look, you're off your moral compass here, sister. What's going on? Then it's like, you know what? My moral compass is, has shifted a little bit. And this is why, and this is why I feel good about it. And this is how I'm going to act accordingly in the future. And so it's having those people who have your best interest, who want you to succeed, who want to see you just absolutely crush life that you need to have those people in your corner to be like, that's false news. That that's totally fake news. That's not a true label. They're off base. That's a them problem, not a you problem. And then other times it's like, you know what, that they actually have some fair feedback here. Like this is actually on brand of what you're doing and what's going on. It's like, holy cow, that was a total blind spot. So I personally have a board of directors or a varsity team. And then I have my JV team, but those varsity players are the key to making sure that I am in alignment with my moral compass and that I am staying true to my North star, because if I'm getting off, it's going to, it's, it's going to be so messy for everybody and it's not a good time. So that's how I make sure like people are going to throw labels on you. People are going to throw dirt on you. People are going to do everything in between. They'll praise you. They'll hate you. They'll 
roll out the red carpet and they'll try to trip you on the way. So regardless of where you're at, have those five people that you can 100% count on who have shown you that compassion, that empathy, that feedback that really do want your best interest and hone those in to make sure that you stay true to yourself because labels are going to come left, right, and center. But as long as you and your A-team are set to jet, you'll be totally fine. Oh, I'm so glad I asked that question. That was so fun to hear how you've organized your team. That's beautiful. And then what personal experience or experiences have you had learning about failure as an experience and not as an identity, as an identity? So what are your personal, like, how has that been integrated into you? A great question. A lot of, I mean, I took singlehood as a failure, not necessarily a failure, but that so many people are like, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you married? Why aren't you married? Why aren't you married? And I'm like, holy smokies, cool the jets. Like you got married before you could actually tie your shoes and your frontal lobe wasn't fully developed. You come from a different generation, a different cultural ideology set. So something that I had to do to like remove some of those those labels or that identity of failing because I wasn't married. I went through and I did what was called a life concept design. And I was like, okay, well, do I actually want to be married? Like I had to have a strong disarm myself and be really honest. And some of those wounds are there. Some of those wounds are like, do I actually want to be married? Do I want to have a family? Do I want to stay active in my church fellowship? Do What do I actually want? And so going through and really re-scaffolding my life and rebuilding those pillars was crucial to removing that failure identity of like, you failed. Like I, Tracy, I have been on literally thousands of dates and that's not an understatement. In the past few years, I've been on over 200 first dates. First dates alone, that's not including second dates, third dates, relationships, and that's just in the past few years. So I felt that sting of failure every single time. I'm like, how many freaking false starts can one have until you're just like, screw this. I'm out. This is terrible. I've gotten my heart beat to a pulp. I'm out. I'm not doing this. And you know what? There's sometimes that I did have to bench myself. I'm like, I'm too tired. Like I have nothing left to give. I failed. And then I was like, did I fail or did I learn? And what did I learn? And how am I going to be different the next time I enter this arena? And so retraining my mind to understand like, this is what I actually want. Yes, I do want to be married. I want to have that companion. I want to create that life with someone. And I also want to have little love muffins. They're going to be hell on wheels. And I'm very aware of that because apples doesn't fall far from the tree. So like, yeah, they're going to be gem of gems. But then there were other things that I was like, absolutely not. I don't believe in that. I don't believe that that resonates for my life and for my spiritual practice or my emotional health, whatever that may be. And I had to really dig deep and be like, I, I'm not a failure. I experienced and learned so much that so many other people won't even come close to like how many people can say they literally have been on over 200 first dates in the past few years, like the amount of conversations I've had, the amount of hearts that I've had the opportunity to touch and they touch mine too. The amount of like hard conversations I've had to have those things and those skills are going to serve me the rest of my life. And so while the result quote unquote result wasn't what I was expecting, 
the gift that those experiences gave me are invaluable. And so if we can reframe, like I didn't, I'm not a failure. I am learning and I'm growing and I'm experiencing and I'm in my stretch zone and you know, I am tuckered. I am tired. Like it's okay to take a break. It's okay to take a breath. You have to know yourself and you have to understand like, I am not a failure, but what I am is I am strong. I am resilient. I am trying. I am putting forth effort. I am awesome. I love life. And you know what? If someone wants to come hitch their bandwagon to this, awesome. But like, there's like, there's metrics and we're going to have to go through the, the ringer together in order to have that refiner's fire experience to really meld our lives together and to meld that complete miracle that happens when any marriage happens. Let's be real. Like the fact that two people are willing to choose each other. <gasps> okay. That's crazy. <laughs> like, that's it. You're my person for the rest of forever. Uh, okay. Cool. cool, cool. <laughs> that's, that's a miracle. Like every single marriage to me is a straight up miracle. That's something that I've had to reconcile and wrestle with is that identity that I failed because I kept having these false starts with all of these, honestly, a lot of wonderful men and honestly, a lot of horrific men too. I mean, it's just like, you have to go through and you have to figure yourself out and you have to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And if you're learning, you're growing. And if you're growing, you're evolving. And if you're evolving, you're not failing. You're not failing at all. You are experiencing the stretch zone. You're experiencing that evolution. And that's what we need. Like as human beings, we crave that and we need it. It's by divine design that we have to have that resistance in order to grow. You're not going to throw some seed on the cement and expect it to grow. It needs dirt. It needs resistance. It needs nutrients. It needs water. Like that dirt is so important. And that dirt could be like, people are gossiping about you. That dirt could be like, I'm in a really unique situation and I need to figure out how to navigate this. That's dirt. That's the growth. You have to have dirt in order to grow. Yeah. Wow. That was just so exciting. In this situation, you just barely got engaged this past weekend. I think. Is that true? Was it this past weekend? Yeah. April. Yep. April 30th. So tell us about how that this miracle came to be and how did you actually decide that you want to like hit your wagon to Alan? Oh my gosh, let's go. I love talking about Alan because he is a sugar and a half. So um, once upon a time, our mutual friend, Steph, she was hosting one of her usual gatherings, you know, and she invited me over and at that point, I was 0% interested in dating, like 0% interested. I was there to show support to my friend and meet and greet people for like 15 minutes. And then I was going to bail. So then um, Alan was there and I was like, he seems like a nice guy. Talked to him for maybe like 30 seconds. And then I kept going. And then he would consistently show up in these different gatherings that were happening. And we also were part of the same church congregation. And so I saw him there and I got to see him in these different environments. And anyone who has been dating in the past five years uh, knows what dating apps are like and that they are a wild circus at best. You never know what you're actually going to get if the person is even real. And anyways, so 
he kept showing up and he was very consistent. And I saw him in these different environments. I saw him be really kind and compassionate towards people. I saw him be really gregarious and outgoing and fun loving. And then I was like, you've piqued my interest, which takes a lot for this, honey. And so his consistency was really what intrigued me because I hadn't experienced that in the past. And so he consistently was showing up and I said, Hey, like, I, I kind of want to get to know this guy. So my parents, they have, um, season tickets to the real salt Lake soccer team. And they had two tickets that they were like, Carolyn, do you want to come and bring a friend? I was like, actually, yes, I do. So I texted Alan. I said, Hey, this is Carolyn. Uh, I scored two tickets to the real salt Lake game and any interest in joining me. So I technically asked him out on our first date, which I do not do for the record. And um, it was like 10 o'clock at night. I turned off my phone immediately because I was like, I'm a grandma. I'm going to bed. If you're in, cool. If you're not, cool. Well, he had responded within like two minutes when I turned my phone back on. I was like, okay, okay. So you actually are responsive. That's nice. So he picks me up. We go, we get there and all of a sudden I realized that I neglected to tell him that the other two people that were joining us were my parents. Like first date with my parents in our thirties. Could that be any more of a party fell? I submit not. I submit not. So we're there. I tell him that the other two people are my parents and he just chuckled. And he said, I'm sure they're great. I'm sure they're going to be wonderful people. And we had a great time. Like we all chatted, we got along and, um, and then he just like, then he started to ask me out and he made chicken tikka masala, which was phenomenal. I was like, and you can cook. Okay. Okay. And then he helped me. Um, this, so that, so like we kind of went off and on for a little bit and then January 1st happened and he was, he was moving slower than molasses on a cold winter's day. And I just can't handle that cadence. I just could not. So it was one of those things where I was like, you know what, forget you. I'm going to go date other dudes. If you don't want this, like, fine. Bye. So then I go on a dating rampage and then it was one of those really unique experiences where I had this very distinct thought of, if you do not have a conversation with Alan, you'll regret it. I was like, excuse me. That's a bold statement. And I was like, did I mumble? Like, sure didn't. So I was like, well, how do I get this guy over here? Like, how do I have this conversation? So I needed my curtain rod hung up in my living room and he had helped me do something before. So I sent him a text and I was like, hey, Alan, uh, I, any interest in helping me hang a curtain rod? Again, within 10 minutes, he responded. He's like, you just let me know when and I'll be there. And I was like, he never made me feel like a burden. He never made me feel like an inconvenience. He showed up. He was consistent. And so then I was like, Alan, what are your New Year's resolutions after we had like finished our the house project? And he's like, oh, like that's not really my jam. But like, what about you? I know you're really into those. And so we started chatting about that. And he said, I, I was like, oh my gosh, I need to bring up this dating thing. So then I said, Alan, I like one of the things that I'm really working on is who and how I date. And I know that we had gone on dates in the past. And I'm curious if you're interested in continuing that or if you want to keep this strictly platonic. Both options are totally fine. I just want to know where you're at. And he, he started to laugh. He's like, you sound so corporate right now. I was like, 
is because it's scary. Like that's scary stuff. So then like a half hour later, we're like, cool, let's jump in. Let's see where this goes. And then he just was so consistent with me and so kind. And he just, he just enveloped all of me, like the, the imperfections and the ambition and the growth and the messy part of me and the weakness, like everything. He was like, I, I remember the first time he said, I love you. He hadn't even kissed me yet. I was like, excuse me, did you just say the L bomb and you haven't even kissed me? Uh, okay. <laughs> like that's a different, that's a different pace. Like that's totally different. So it was just one of those beautiful things that he allowed me to figure things out on my own. And also like I said, Alan, when I was on these dates, with these other dudes, I was like, I don't even want to be on these dates with these dudes. I want to be with Alan. So why am I not with him? Why am I not putting forth that explicitly clear message? I want to get to know you. I want to understand you. I want to know what makes you tick. What makes you excited? What are your hobbies? Like, what are your dreams and ambitions? What does that look like for you? And so, so then we just continued to date and he was consistent. That was, I think that was the magic sauce was the consistency and that he genuinely wanted to hear what I had to say. <clears throat> okay, sir. Like I'm in, I'm in. And so he, he's just shown me so many beautiful parts of a relationship that I didn't even know existed. And he just, it's, it's like one of those like really special moments that you have with another person of like, you see all of me and you want all of me, the mess and the imperfection and the dreams and the ambitions you want all of it. And like, you hold it so well and so perfectly that, well, I mean, perfectly for me, right? Like that's not going to be perfect for everyone, but it's just like, you hold my heart like no one else. Like, yeah, you're my person. Dibs, no take backsies. That's the person I want. And I mean, it's one thing to be needed, but it's a totally different experience to be wanted. Like, I want your company. I want your presence. I want your ideas. I want your thoughts. And that's when it really started to evolve this really beautiful love story. And I'm just so thankful for him. He is truly, he's my unicorn. He is literally my unicorn. (laughs) What a gift. What a day. Seriously, I am in love with Alan too. I mean, that that just <laughs> that sold Alan to all of us who are listening to this. Go, Alan, go. Consistent Alan. Right? Yeah. I, I just feel like that's so fun to hear somebody talk about someone else in that way is such an honor. And that's that's a beautiful thing. And I do I did notice in that that you mentioned, oh, it's consistency. Like he was consistent in these things and also consistent in his um, interest and that he cared about what you had to say. And that part is actually research-based from the Gottmans, right? The Gottmans, uh, they specifically stated that the biggest thing you can do to support like a marriage that's healthy is a marriage where there's still curiosity, where both members are still curious about each other as the time goes on, that they don't wax and wane out of the curiosity, that they maintain their curiosity for their partner. That makes so much sense, Tracy, because like, you're not the same person you were three years ago. You have grown and you've evolved. And it's like, oh gosh, like what makes Tracy tick now? Like what is something that just lights her fire now? And what, like what's going to happen in the future? What's going to happen next year? What's going to be something that just 
totally evolves who you are. I mean, curiosity is one is is the crucible to successful relationships. It is. It's 100%. If anybody wants my advice, it's stay curious about your partner because that is what's going to keep the light like alive and the love alive. And then you'll be like, wow, we've like really developed into something that's different than what we used to have before. But it's not that we've lost or glossed over getting used to each other because we do get used to each other. That is part of it. And that's good. That's a good thing, but it can become something that creates complacency. So the curiosity is what can keep the spark in that relationship. Mm, Soul food right there. (laughs) So I know we're going to, we're going to transition back to the classroom, but what do you feel like should be mandatory to teach in school about confidence and failure? I, I think it gets a little bit more granular than confidence and failure. It gets granular to the communication because all relationships, whether professional or personal, are created, maintained, or destroyed by communication. So if we can teach these youth how to ask open-ended questions. I actually taught a group of people the difference between an open-ended question and a closed-ended question. And they're like, oh, I had no idea. That totally changes everything. I was like, it does. It does. It does. Like, what's the intention? Like, are you really wanting to get to know these people? Because the thing is, is that confidence is built conversation upon conversation and confidence in yourself, in your skills, in your ability to communicate, in your ability to connect, in your ability to have more courageous experiences where you are flexing your skills a little bit of like, Ooh, this is a little uncomfortable. Like, okay. But like you built that confidence because you were able to have that internal narrative of like, I can do this. I can try this. I can have a new experience. I can grow. I can learn. I want to learn. And so I think it comes down to the communication, not only their internal narrative, but the environmental rhetoric that's happening too. what's going on around the schools. I saw a poster that said that had um, four things on it. it, had a K and then a blank slate and then an N and a D. And it said, be the I in kind. And I was like, I can get behind that. I am fully on board with that. Absolutely. Yes. And so that environmental rhetoric also plays a factor into how people think about themselves, how they view themselves. Like I, it starts with me. Like we need to stop outsourcing our happiness. We need to stop thinking that other people are going to provide us the resiliency that we need or the confidence that we need. It, if you outsource your happiness, you were personally robbing yourself of self-fulfillment, of self-confidence, of self-worth. Because if you are constantly having all of these other opinions bombard you of whether or not you're valuable, you're going to be tossed. You're going to be tossed to and fro. The waves and the winds are going to come howling. And you won't even know where your anchor is because you haven't built that intrinsically. The waves and the winds will come. It's inevitable. If you're a human, you will have resistance. You will experience failure. You will experience hardship. You will have bumps and bruises along the way. And that's why it's so important to have your crew on your ship be your A team, be your varsity players. Like, do they know how to row together? Do they know how to like build you up? Do you know where to go as the captain of your ship to steer? Because if you're outsourcing who's steering the ship, where are you going? So we have to teach these young people, and I would argue adults as well, how to stop outsourcing your happiness and to build that intrinsically through positive self-talk, through being kind, through like 
simply using our manners of acknowledging someone else's kindness. Like, thank you for having me on your podcast. I want to acknowledge that. Like, that is so kind and generous of you. And so like, it's those little micro moments that really make the big difference. It's that one degree shift that will fundamentally change everything. And what do you teach them about social media? Because that is their world that they've created. And specifically that comment the girl said about Instagram and how if I don't, if I'm not there, I'm not real kind of a thing. And how fascinating, right? Because this is, it's almost like, wow, that's not real. And you are, right? Like that's opposite. But I do wonder how do you, how are you supporting them in getting appropriate boundaries around social media? That was something that totally blindsided me, to be honest. I had no idea that there was so much investment into social media, that it was literally their identity. If I'm not on Instagram, I don't exist. That's a whole different paradigm shift than I was even remotely anticipating. And so it comes back to how do we teach these youth how to have healthy boundaries? How do we teach them? that their self-worth is theirs to own and not to give away. That is truly theirs to own. And so how are we building them? What tools are we, are we teaching them? What, what can we actually do not only as like educators and as parents, but as a complete society, like I don't have kids. I'm not a teacher. I mean, undercover substitute teacher right now, but like, I'm not in the classrooms. I'm not in the daily grind like these educators are. And so what are we doing as an entire community to really invest in them? And what does that look like? Put away your phones. Show them a different way. Don't tell them a different way. We need to show them a different way because people will 100% believe what you do versus what you say. And if it's like, put away your phone, put away your phone, but then you're over here on like Marco Polo or on your own social media stuff, they, they mirror your behavior. And so it comes back to, I, th- I think it's a bigger, uh, bigger elephant than I was expecting to experience. And so I don't honestly have a, an answer for that right now. I don't know how to, how to do that yet. And I am trying to get more information as I go throughout this substitute teaching experience of like, why is it that social media is so valuable to you? Why is that? Why is your worth tied to social media? One gal was like, I get so much anxiety because I'm like, how many comments, how many likes am I going to get? Point of clarification, you're worried about how many likes and comments you're getting and you're basing your worth off of those metrics. When in reality, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, but it matters to them. That's the thing is like, it may not matter to me. It may not matter to someone else, but like it matters to them. And so how are we going to recalibrate that? How are we going to reframe that? I think there's going to be a lot of evolution in the next few years because these young adults are going to be in the professional setting and we won't know, like there's going to be several different generations in the workplace. How are we going to all accommodate the newness of social media? And we're seeing it now, but it's only getting worse. It's only getting more and more intense. And Gosh, Tracy, what a, like, what a question. I'm going to have to chew on that for a hot minute because it is, it's a lot. It, I mean, seeing the, even like seeing their countenance change when we were talking about social media, it was like, they, it's almost like they put up this barrier in the shield of like, social media is my protection and it's my validation. And it's like, wow, that's so different. 
I've struggled with having the appropriate relationship with my phone in general, just having an appropriate relationship with my phone such that it's not captivating and taking it, that it's an actual tool and it's something that supports my life rather than something that takes all my time. It's a numbing agent and there's so much going on and there's so much to try to navigate. And when I asked these kids, I was like, so do you think that social media is used as a numbing agent? Every single one of them said, yes. I was like, so what are you running from? Like, what are you running from? And I was like, don't answer that. <laughs> like, that's personal. I don't need to know these things. But like, as adults too, what are we running from? Processing emotion and processing like, well, you know what? We're bored. Like, this is how we're going to escape boredom. And this is, this is a human experience at this point where so many people are on social media and we use that as a numbing agent or an escape or a decompress, whatever euphemism people want to use here. Like at the end of the day, it really is a numbing agent. And gosh, they have got it down to a science on keeping us on social media. And so I think adults are learning that too. We're trying to figure it out and the kids want to be involved too. And so we're like, yeah, totally. But then we're opening up a huge can of worms. Yeah. I'm so excited for your, your experiment to continue because I know that you're going to continue to gain some really amazing insights, especially as you're making this a targeted study. That is so beautiful, Carolyn. I am so grateful that you will are willing to embark on this. And honestly, listening to you, I'm like, I must invest in the youth. You know, I must invest in them. So this has really motivated me. Thank you so much. And you talked about how you taught them about open-ended versus closed questions. What is another communication skill that you would potentially teach them about how to improve their communication? So I taught them how to do an icebreaker because I asked them, would you, I said, hypothetically speaking, if you had an assignment to reach out to three people that you didn't know, either a, that you didn't know, or two that were like the people that you hadn't talked to in a hot minute, um, years. Cause most of these kids that I've chatted with, they've grown up together and they like kind of know each other, but they kind of don't. And so immediately all of them were like, absolutely not. I was like, why, why do you feel that way? They're like, they're going to judge us. I was like, okay, walk me through what, like, walk me, what, what's happening here. And they're like, well, they're going to think I'm weird. I was like, I'm weird. We're all weird. We all have our flavor of weird. So, okay. So they say that you're weird. Then what? They're like, well, then we go cry and we try again. I was like, great. Perfect. Let those tears rip. Good. Get it out. Process that. Wonderful. So now what? And they're like, well, we don't know how to like, it's just like awkward. I don't know how to like do this. And I said, okay, we'll say the student is Angela. Angela, why don't you go up to a person and say, hey, I haven't met you yet. What's your name? And they're like, oh. And they say their name. We'll say, Tracy. My name is Tracy. What's your name? I'm Angela. What are some of your what are you up to this summer? Oh my gosh, you just started a conversation with a person, a real human. And they're like, you know, after you explained it, it doesn't seem that hard. I was like, it's because it's not, we're making it hard though. 
we're making it, we are intentionally making it hard, like because of these social media disconnects. And this one person asked, well, is the assignment that you have to reach out to three people on, on like social media or in person? And I said, in person, she's like, nope, not doing it. I would much rather do that online. And I asked her why. And she's like, well, because I can get to know them through their stories and I feel connected to them. I was like, so you would rather be quote unquote connected to some person that will never come to any of your sporting events, will never come to your graduation, will never cheer you on in your in your life. than to have someone who's like literally in the trenches with you who can be like, hey, you know what, sister, you can do this. You've got this. This test is going to be tricky. But like you dedicated your time and energy and effort to being successful. You got this. Like it has to be a two-way street. It can't just be this one-way like experience. And so that would be another one is teaching them how to initiate conversation and to stop outsourcing that to other people. Because every single one of them said, if someone came up to me and started talking to me, I'd be so happy. I'm like, well, why don't you do it? Well, because it's scary and it's awkward. I was like, well, don't you think that they think that too? I never thought of that. Well, it's probably because everybody's thinking everybody else should come talk to them when in reality, stop outsourcing it. And so I have three students actually who committed to reaching out to three different people every single day, and they're going to report back to me on Friday. So, and I told them, I was like, listen, you three, I guarantee you that if you do this, you will instantaneously see people's countenances change and you yourself will change. I guarantee that it will be a positive experience if you put forth the effort to do it. I would bet my entire life savings if I was allowed to bet with you, but I'm not. So this is just hypothetical, but that's how much I believe in this. And so um, I'm hoping that by the end of the week, I mean, I don't know who I'm going to stop for, right? So hopefully I'm going to circle back with them, but they were committed to do it. And then they're like, oh my gosh, Miss Morris, what if we got two other people to do it too? And then we could get more people so that you could have more research. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> like start a revolution. Talk to the people next to you. What an idea. Great. Let's go. Right. But it's just like that kind of stuff that you're not listening. And this particular book talks about how at the Vatican in, in the, like at the Vatican, there are people who they've never been so busy having people come the Vatican to listen, to do confessions. And he's like, it's not even because people are confessing. It's because people want someone to listen to them. So the question that I want to ask is, what is one thing you think if most people started doing would make their life markedly better? And then on the contrary, what is one thing that people could stop doing that would make their lives better? Um, if people started uh, putting healthy boundaries around their phones and when someone was talking with them, they put their phone away and listen with their eyeballs. Listen with your eyeballs. Don't multitask. You can't multitask. That is the biggest myth on the planet. You cannot actually do that. So stop trying. Like, Be respectful of their time, their energy, and their resources by simply putting away your phone. Um, I actually had an experience where a family member was chronically on their phone. And I said, listen, if you can't get off your phone, I'm not going to talk to you. And they're like, what do you mean? I was like, I like you're nodding in a grant, like you're listening, but I know that you're texting these other people. And right now I need your undivided attention. And so I'm expressing my needs. I'm expressing what I expect from you. And like, if you can do that, great. If not, I'm not going to talk. Like I'm not doing that. So if people would start putting away their phones and listening with their eyeballs, 
that will fundamentally change your relationships. If people stopped outsourcing their happiness, it would change their lives because they're not expecting anyone else to bring them happiness except for themselves. And so being strategic in who you allow in, strategic in what you listen to, what you read, what you engage in, that will change your life. Stop outsourcing your happiness and be your best, be your own best advocate. Oftentimes we're our own worst critic. Stop it. There's enough critics to go around. You live with yourself 365, 24-7. Be your own best advocate and believe in yourself by stop outsourcing your happiness. Carolyn, you're an absolute treasure. And there is so much about this conversation that I am excited about because of my experience. And so I'm so grateful for you for investing in our youth. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Thank you. And thanks for sharing your love story. That was just such a pleasure. Alan, we are so excited for you and Carolyn. And what a great guy. Just so excited about his consistency because that is really what matters, you guys. But Carolyn, is there anything I didn't, I failed to ask you that you wanted to mention? I think we covered it, Tracy. I think we've got, I mean, it's a good baseline, right? Like be consistent, stop outsourcing your happiness, put your phone away, like be present, like be present. If you're numbing your emotions, go see a therapist. Truly, like I am pro-therapy. One of my best friends is a therapist. Go see her. Well, she works with kids, so you can't see her. But like, go go and express your emotions. Go get that process so that people will see how to be an adult. They'll see what it's like to be a healthy, happy adult with boundaries and that can communicate because they know how to, they've processed that. So pro-therapy, I'm just putting a plug in there. Love it. Carolyn, how do we get a hold of you? So I am on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, Carolyn.Morris is my handle. And then you can also check out my website, myorangesoul.com. And you can hit me up there. Obviously, we'd love to chat with educators and with the youth. And I want to like understand more and learn more. And we can rock and roll. We are going to we're going to tee up these youths to be absolute all stars. I support this message. 